0: You are listening to Natural Born Alchemist. Welcome to episode number 242 of the Natural Born Alchemist podcast. My name is Alex and I'll be your host. This is the fourth and final episode of a four-part series recorded at the Third World Ayahuasca Conference in Girona, Catalonia, Spain, organized by ISEERS. In this one we are going to conclude with, in my opinion, the best episode of the four, with the help of anthropologist Jeremy Narby, author of the excellent books The Cosmic Serpent and Intelligence in Nature. Welcome
1: to the uh, third edition of the World Ayahuasca Conference. Welcome to the uh, third edition of the World Ayahuasca Conference.
0: Which, you know, things like this conference, things like ayahuasca, do encourage people to at least be concerned about Amazonians, who are generally disregarded uh, worldwide. The human species, which I sometimes call the stupid monkeys, Uh, are not listening to the message, which is that we have to re-understand our relationship with nature. Right now, the public education is the most
1: important thing. Very little research is conducted in a dialogue with indigenous Amazonian people the extraction never stops the extraction never stops
0: viva los pueblos indígenas de la cuenca amazonica So, without further ado, here is the great Jeremy Narby. And if you are a student of ayahuasca in any shape or form, pay close attention.
1: It's been a great conference. I'm really grateful for this opportunity. I'd like to thank ICERS and all the great people here. A lot of very interesting talks, and it's uh, a pleasure and a privilege to get up on this stage after these great speakers. The last two people we just heard were wonderful. A long time ago, I spent a couple of years living with Ashaninka people in the Peruvian Amazon. I wanted to study how these people use the rainforest. At first, I didn't pay much attention to what they thought of me, because I'd come to study them, and not the other way around. But I soon realized that they too had an eye on me. The young people in the community that I was living in spoke Spanish on top of their mother tongue. And this allowed us to communicate freely. And one day I was hanging out with some young Ashaninka and they were asking questions about where I came from. Like, what's it like in your land? And where is your land? And in response, I began talking about a round planet on which we all lived, and I noticed some puzzled looks, so I launched into an explanation about what I understood about the movement of planets, and I grabbed a, a grapefruit and a lemon, and I started miming the rotation of the earth around the uh, sun, and at one point I indicated one side of the lemon and said, and this is Europe where I live. And then I pointed to another, to the other side of the lemon and said, this is the Peruvian Amazon where we are now. And the young Ashaninka listened to this demonstration in silence and when I was done, they continued saying nothing. Well, in the months that followed, I came to understand that the Ashaninka community had a different point of view on the matter. And in their view, white people like myself, viracocha in Ashaninka, or gring- gringos in Spanish, come from a level situated below where the Ashaninka live. And We live underground, which is why our skins are so pale. (laughs) And we live in uh, uh, vast cities filled with sophisticated technologies. And we occasionally access the level at which the Ashaninka live by passing through lakes. And we come up to capture Ashaninka women and children to extract the fat from their bodies, uh, which we turn into a fine oil that we need to run our machines and the motors of our airplanes. I came to realize that the people with whom I was living considered that I was a potential pishtako or white vampire bent on killing people and extracting their body fat. Well, I initially found it disturbing that people could think of me in this way, and then I realized that it, it was an appropriate metaphor for the historical behavior of Westerners in the Amazon. In the 16th century, the first conquistadors had killed and destroyed to extract gold to take back to their countries. And since then, the pattern has remained the same as Westerners have come to extract rubber, oil, wood, minerals. For the Ashaninka, it was clear that I was a gringo, white. Um, But I also had blue eyes, fair hair, and a beard. And this just happened to be the exact characteristics ascribed to Pishtakos. So from their perspective, I certainly looked like a Pishtako. So, it seemed reasonable to think that I'd come to extract something. On several occasions, individual men in the community took me aside and told me that they knew of nearby gold deposits that they'd be willing to show me. Um, I would respond to these propositions with indifference. Much to their surprise, a gringo, uninterested in gold, was this possible? The people in the community regularly asked me questions about the world of gringos. And one question in particular kept cropping up. Why is it that gringos never have enough wealth you can give them gold. They'll, they'll only want more. Why? In their point of view, uh, gringos were obsessed with uh, extraction and accumulation. Uh, well. Yeah. Uh, I became accustomed to living with them and them seeing me like this. It, it was true that, for example, they had a fascination for the objects I owned, and um, and they tirelessly asked me questions about them. Like, so, how do you make rubber boots with leather linings, or a Swiss Army knife, or a portable tape recorder. I was perhaps a pishtaco, but I had fascinating merchandise. And this fascination with the merchandise of Westerners extends across different Amazonian indigenous groups. The, the Piro people in the Peruvian Amazon call white people in their language owners of objects, and the Yanomami people call white people, in the Brazilian Amazon, call white people the people of the merchandise, so living with Ashaninka people, I became used to them seeing me as a pishtaco, obsessed with extraction and accumulation but I also vowed to try to prove them wrong and try to extract as little as possible and to make myself useful to them. So after a couple of years living with them, I returned home and wrote a dissertation and began working for a humanitarian organization active in the Peruvian Amazon. And over the last 30 years, this work, which is ongoing, has allowed me to meet many different uh, indigenous Amazonian peoples, especially in the Peruvian Amazon. So not just Ashaninka, but Awahun, Shawi, Kukama Kukamiria, Matsigenka, And to my surprise, I found that all of these people referred to Pistakos. And one day in 2002, I was traveling with some awahun people in the northeast of the Peruvian Amazon, and we stopped in um, at an isolated house in the forest, which was the home of one of the members of our party. and his wife who was there began serving bowls of manioc beer, but when she saw me, she went all pale and started shaking and she couldn't come close enough to me to give me a bowl of beer. And she started saying the word pishtako several times. Well, I saw her husband reprimand her in Awahun told her to serve me a beer like to anybody else. And then when we resumed our trek, um, the fellow explained to I knew we'd known each other for several years, he worked as a bilingual teacher, and he, he told me that his wife wasn't used to seeing white people, and uh, that her attitude was not ill-will. And it was then that I understood that receiving the visit of a gringo pishtaco when you weren't used to it was like receiving the visit of Count Dracula himself with his pale skin and blood-tinged teeth, a grim prospect So I made an effort to consider the following question. Was I truly a white vampire here in the Peruvian Amazon to extract the body fat of indigenous Amazonian people? Well, I was certainly a child of capitalism, rationalism, and materialism and my ancestors had participated in the development of global capitalism, the wheels of which had been greased by the ruthless exploitation of indigenous Amazonian people. The accounts I'd read of the atrocities committed (laughs) against indigenous Amazonians during the rubber boom of the 19th and 20th century were pretty terrible. So from an Amazonian perspective, my culture was certainly Pistaco-like, and so therefore, so was I. The Pistaco image became all the more troubling because it was coherent. As a young anthropologist living with Ashaninka people, I I had extracted data from them and then turned this data into a dissertation for my personal benefit. Now, as I worked for a humanitarian organization that backed the initiatives of indigenous Amazonian people, such as land titling and bilingual education programs, I felt relieved to be able to partially atone for my past. Reciprocity, I realized, is an antidote to pistaco But uh, I did not discourage Amazonian people from considering Westerners as Pistacos obsessed with extraction and accumulation because I'd come to view the metaphor as essentially true. Well, in the last 20 years, a new generation of Westerners has arrived in the Amazon in search of shamanic experiences and healing. And From an Amazonian perspective, um, this surprises no one, that gringos should be in search of healing. Um, What's different this time is that they haven't come to extract gold or material wealth, but they want to learn, and they're even willing to pay for it. All this is new. So what do indigenous Amazonians think about Westerners who come to the Amazon to drink ayahuasca? I put this question to several Amazonian people who work to defend indigenous cultures and languages and who have no direct interest in the ayahuasca economy or in the commerce of medicinal plants. Never Tuesta Seron, the Awahun director of a training program for bilingual indigenous teachers in Iquitos, Peru, um, told me that he was optimistic about the new visitors. I think it is good if Europeans come to learn about the knowledge of indigenous peoples, he said he was open and pragmatic. The only thing he asked was that the visitors follow proper procedures. But he also said that this was just his personal opinion and so he submitted my question to several indigenous elders who work for the program that he runs and um, who have been elected by their respective peoples to teach their indigenous language and culture to future teachers in training. And none of the elders who responded objected to Westerners who come to drink ayahuasca, but several found it problematic when the Westerners extracted ayahuasca and took it back to their countries. And I'll just read you a couple of quotes. As Maritza Ramirez Tamani, an elder of the Kukama Kukamiria people said, quote, that gringos come to drink is inevitable but what is not good is that they take ayahuasca to drink in other places. They already stole everything we had. It's the last straw that they should also steal our spiritual strength. I would ask the Europeans that they drink, but that they do not take it back to their countries because this breaks the strength and leaves the maestros weakened." Uh, Unquote. Gringos. They're always extracting something. And now it's ayahuasca. Rafael Chanchari Pisuri, an elder of the uh, Shawi people, pointed out a historical injustice at play in this case. Quote, The religious ancestors of the Europeans came some time ago to tell our grandparents to stop drinking ayahuasca, saying it was satanic work. And so we mainly gave it up. And many people were put to death for having drunk ayahuasca and for having healed people of different diseases. And now Europeans and Americans drink ayahuasca in their cities, protected by human rights. Practically, they took away our knowledge by demonizing ayahuasca among indigenous peoples. They must pay us back or return something to us and ensure that ayahuasca be used for its true objectives, namely healing, protection, and prevention of all kinds of diseases." I understand Rafael. Uh, Chanchari as saying, the cat may be out of the bag, but it's an Amazonian cat, and it comes with a historical debt, and the world's ayahuasca enthusiasts have a debt towards the first peoples who developed the practices they are now drawing from. And. As you've been able to tell by listening to previous speakers, the indigenous people of the Amazon are fighting for their survival as indigenous communities across the Amazon are faced with extractive industries, wide-scale deforestation, environmental contamination, and territorial encroachment. In these circumstances, benefiting from the healing of ayahuasca while doing nothing for the people who initially developed the brew and who are in difficult circumstances seems vampiric. So what can well-intentioned ayahuasca drinkers do to diffuse this? Well, one suggestion among many possible suggestions um, is find an organization near you that backs the initiatives of indigenous Amazonian people and make a donation every time you drink the brew according to your means and according to what you think the medicine has given you. turns out that really indigenous Amazonian people are on the front lines of defending the, the rainforest. And this is a key issue, not only for them, but for biodiversity, for climate stability, for life on earth. Satellite imagery proves that rainforest that is legally controlled by indigenous Amazonians is more intact even than national parks or nature reserves, and yet indigenous Amazonian people receive little outside support. So this is an opportunity for ayahuasca drinkers to demonstrate their heightened uh, sensitivities and show solidarity with and reciprocity towards Uh, indigenous Amazonian people, and it's true that there already are some gringos who have given their lives to ayahuasca, studied it seriously, have ongoing relations with Amazonian people, and do what they do with respect and reciprocity. So some recovering vampires can turn out to be useful allies for indigenous Amazonians? Well, individual gringos are one thing. The international scientific community is another. Science has a long history of taking the plants and knowledge of indigenous Amazonian people and giving little in return. The extraction never stops. And this is vampire science. And it seems to be happening again with ayahuasca. As scientists discover the brew's remarkable properties, very little research is conducted in a dialogue with indigenous Amazonian people. This is one thing that scientists could return to indigenous Amazonians, one minimal thing, a recognition that they are worthy partners in dialogue. And I think that... uh, A true dialogue with indigenous Amazonian people would help scientists reach a fuller understanding of ayahuasca. For the moment, many scientists seem to reduce ayahuasca to the DMT it contains and consider it as a form of drinkable DMT or orally active DMT Indigenous Amazonians have said from the beginning that uh, the main plant in the brew is the ayahuasca vine itself, which does not contain DMT. The DMT comes from the admixture plants like chacruna. The ayahuasca vine contains the harmala alkaloids, harmine, harmaline, and so on, and it turns out that Harmine also generates visuals that are perhaps not as colorful and spectacular as the DMT visuals, but nonetheless. Um, and harmine has anti-inflammatory properties. It helps generate new neurons. And some research shows that it may have antiviral, antimicrobial, antifungal, and anti-tumor properties. So ayahuasca is certainly a complex brew of chemicals, and reducing it to the DMT it contains may be missing the essential. Um, I'd like to mention some um, interesting research that was reported on yesterday, uh, uh, Hele Kassik, uh, uh, and her presentation called What's in the Cup? She took ayahuasca samples across the uh, Amazon and what she showed was that the indigenous ayahuascas tended to contain much more harming and much less DMT, whereas the ayahuasca sampled from the neo-shamanic retreat centers were very high in DMT and much lower in the harming and so forth. It seems that the Gringos really like the, the DMT fireworks. Um, well, I've, I've got nothing against the, the fireworks, um, but uh, indigenous Amazonian people tend to say that those visuals are, are not the essential part. There's the purge, of course. Uh, there are the revelations the understanding, the ideas, not necessarily the visuals that are the important part. So, more research is certainly needed to reach a full understanding of the ayahuasca brew, and veritable dialogues between scientists and indigenous Amazonians simply make sense. And besides, such dialogues would help scientists devamperize their relations with indigenous Amazonians on the sensitive subject of ayahuasca. I'd actually be happy to see at maybe the next ayahuasca conference more dialogues between Indigenous people and scientists, where it would be kind of like a debate and not that not too many people on the stage. But what does the indigenous shaman have to say? What does the scientist have to say? How can these ways of understanding be brought together? Gracias. In conclusion, I think there is a deep truth to the Pistaco concept, and Western people tend to end up in vampiric relations with Amazonian people despite their best intentions. And this is due to the power imbalance between the two sides. The problem is that the Westerners stand to extract much more value from the encounter than the Amazonian people do. My life was certainly changed by living with Ashaninka people, much more so than the other way around. And many ayahuasca drinkers say that their time in the Amazon has changed their lives. But what did the Amazonian people who attended to them get out of it? perhaps some payment, but probably nothing quite so life-changing. Undoing this imbalance and making our relations with Amazonian people more reciprocal is the work of a lifetime. Thank you.
0: I want to play some selected bits from the press conference that Jeremy Norby held because he expands on some areas from his talk that I feel are important. The journalists and myself are not speaking into a microphone, so in order to make it easier for you to listen to this press conference, I've re-recorded the questions. Here's
1: Jeremy there was a really interesting piece of uh, research presented yesterday by an Estonian woman, Halle. I can't remember her name. What's in the cup? And she she took um, thirty-nine different samples of ayahuasca, and she had shamanic indigenous ayahuasca and neo-shamanic uh, samples. And what was clear in the chemical composition was that the indigenous ayahuascas were uh, had much more harmine, harmaline in them and less DMT, whereas the neo-shamanic ones had a lot of DMT and less harming and and harmaline. And a lot of scientists reduce ayahuasca to the DMT it contains. They think it's kind of like a a drinkable form of uh, DMT. But if they listen to the indigenous people, they've been saying from the beginning, the main plant is the vine. The vine doesn't contain DMT, it contains the the harmala alkaloids. The harmine itself is, uh, induces visuals; they're more subtle. Uh, they're, they have less lights than the DMT. And harmine, it turns out, has all kinds of. It has a wide range of health-enhancing properties. It's an anti-inflammatory. It uh, uh, produces new neurons. It is possibly antiviral, anti-tumor, antifungal, antimicrobial. So ayahuasca is a complex. Brew of uh, chemicals and reducing it to DMT uh, may be missing the essential. Uh, I- indigenous people tend to say that the DMT-containing admixture plants are there to turn up the lights to make the visions more uh, visual. But and it might even be that the, the visions, the visuals, the fireworks are not the most important part. That in as they talk about the experience, it's about understanding. Uh, It's about revelation. Uh, It's not about the fireworks. And when you see what the Estonian woman showed yesterday, when people in the Amazon are catering to... The Westerners want the Technicolor fireworks. And they think, ah, the visions... We we have an obsession with the visual. So they're turning up the DMT in the the ayahuasca so that the gringos get the the show that they want. you, you may remember in Bugs Bunny, there was Yosemite Sam, the little guy, and he'd, he'd always sort of come in and say, I want a show.
0: <laughs> so, and
1: th- these are, are Westerners. They, they want a show, and if they want the DMT show. Um, anyway, uh, I think that to get a fuller understanding, if you look at the health-enhancing properties of what's in the vine and not the DMT, Uh, I think that more research is needed as to just what is ayahuasca, how does it work, to what extent is the DMT so important, to what extent are the visuals so important, or is perhaps something else going on, I think that a true dialogue between scientists and uh, indigenous people on this subject simply makes sense. And it would also help scientists devamperize their relation with uh, indigenous Amazonians on the sensitive subject of ayahuasca. So there's a lot of uh, room for improvement from individual ayahuasca drinkers, from the scientific community uh, writ large, and it it goes through a, a dialogue and a true respect. And one minimal thing that scientists could give back to indigenous Amazonian people is the recognition that they are worthy partners in dialogue. You don't just go and ask the Indians, okay, where are your plants? Okay, thank you very much, and back to the lab and and ciao. No! These, These people know plants, they know plants better than botanists. How come we're not talking to them like colleagues? Isn't it obvious to the scientists
0: that the important part is the ayahuasca vine? Because if it wasn't, wouldn't the indigenous have named the brew chacruna, which is the DMT ingredient part, instead of naming it
1: ayahuasca? Well, you see, I think that with, and with all respect to the scientists who, who put their finger on DMT and ayahuasca, because actually if you look at when it occurred, and Dennis McKenna was actually centrally involved in, in this, it was like, at last we've resolved the mystery thanks to science. Uh, the, the Indians got it wrong you know, they think it's the vine and so on, but ah, we have the answer, it's actually the DMT, and ah, it's explained, DMT is a powerful hallucinogen, ah, they're intelligent, these Indians, they have an MAO inhibitor, so they reduced the harmala alkaloids in the vine to a role of MAO inhibition that makes the DMT orally active, which it also does, because besides all those properties I mentioned for for the harmala alkaloids, they are also MAO inhibitors. Um, But this was like, actually, science tends to be reductionist and to try to separate things down into individual molecules. And then, ah, we have an explanation. And so that when you finally have an elegant molecular uh, explanation, then you kind of use it to explain everything. And, oh, well, if the Indians actually call it ayahuasca, whereas the ayahuasca plant itself doesn't have DMT in it, Oh, well it's they just don't understand molecules that's all they're they're nice, we respect them we but they don't know what's really going on and what's really going on is what we're telling you is going on and it's the molecular the molecules you know so and it that wasn't even racism really it was just because. They're convinced by their own explanations, but it's true. It's somewhat short-sighted, and that—that's the problem with reductionism. Is that when you actually do, it's very interesting to find out about the individual molecules. But it turns out that with with plants, often there are many different molecules. I mean, ayahuasca is a cocktail, for goodness' sake, and and it clearly it works not just because of one molecule, but because of all the molecules that it contains. It has a wide range of activity. So. Reducing it down to one molecule is is the mistake that reductionism always makes and, and you know I think that people have are starting to understand that reductionism has limits in other words, I want to know the individual molecules so I would be a reductionist as well but at the same time you want to have a, a distance from reductionism you use it you get the molecules and then you pull away and you try to look for the synergies you know you need you need both um, and I think it might start to come and actually by having dialogues like this and conferences like this I think that we can get a sort of uh, wiser, uh, broader understanding that includes science and that also includes the uh, indigenous synergistic point of view.
0: Do you think the medicalization of ayahuasca is problematic?
1: Well, you know, I think that if one were just among reasonable scientists Let's just say that you and I are reasonable scientists, even though I'm not a scientist. But you know, hey, um, you're not reasonable. But like, uh, to me, it seems obvious that the at this point that enough is known about the vine to see that the main um, health-enhancing properties are in the vine and not in the DMT admixture. So let's study vine-only ayahuasca. And you can look at an article by Gail Highpine called The Origins of Ayahuasca. It's available on ayahuasca.com. She um, is a half Lakota woman, I think, who's an anthropologist and she lived with Shuar people in the Napo Napo Valley. Uh, And uh, this is like the area that connects the Andes to the Amazon. You go up that river and it gets to the lowest Uh, mountain pass, and so historically there's always been a lot of passage through the Napo, and it seems that ayahuasca, the vine, comes from the Napo, and that originally and to this day the indigenous people in the Napo uh, uh, drink vine-only ayahuasca and that actually the, the mystery of how they found the DMT admixture plant is no longer a mystery because they take vine only and they add all kinds of plants to it at, at different moments. So real ayahuasca traditional from where it comes, it seems, is vine only. So if we could move away from this DMT uh, uh, vision of ayahuasca, get back to the vine and study, and, and actually vine only is legal. Anywhere because it doesn't contain DMT. So, uh, and, and actually, vine only ayahuasca is interesting. It has less fireworks, so the Westerners tend to be able to get bored with vine only. But actually, the visions are more subtle, they're like silhouettes or kind of smoky much less spectacular you still get some visions then you have all the health enhancing effects that that come with it I think that uh, medical doctors interested in in ayahuasca should work on vine only ayahuasca and and look into it and see just how health enhancing it is and and so then the thing is when you take a vine only thing it's you're we're used to looking for the visions to see what's going on but actually it's about revelation that suddenly an idea comes to you, suddenly you reach understanding. It doesn't go through the visuals. It's, it, it works on another level, and more research is needed on this. Because actually, DMT kind of simplifies things. You think, oh, it's all about the visions. The DMT produces the visions. Et voilà, and this is what's going on with ayahuasca.
0: Why do you think these plants exist? and how can they best be implemented in the 21st century?
1: You know, I think that uh, uh, because I've thought about plants a lot uh, and it's very interesting because they don't have brains and yet clearly they do a lot of things quite deliberately and uh, many of the things they do are articulated through the chemicals that they produce Um, and there's no doubt about the fact that plants manipulate animals, I mean they have sex through insects and they have all kinds of strategies uh, and then they communicate and they share and all this is is actually being discovered. So. That, and I think that in the case of DMT, I'm not saying that we should ignore DMT. In the case of DMT, I think there are like 4,600 species of plants that have been identified so far that produce this molecule that clearly actually does function like a, a classic psychedelic. And if you look at what science says about the impact of psychedelics on our brain, you look at the work of Robin Carhart-Harris and so on, it, it, it's actually like it disrupts the normal functioning of our of our brains. So. Uh, why do plants produce molecules that disrupt the functioning of animal brains and actually get us to think more creatively, get us to feel closer to nature? Um, well, I think that uh, you're saying, oh, the DMT is there for no reason, and it just so happens that these plants produce this molecule. You can believe that if you want, but to me it seems fairly obvious that... Uh, it makes sense that plants should produce substances that, that get the mammals, and in particular the humans, to think a little bit different, shake up, the, shake up their brains a little bit to, uh, you know, uh, smarten up the animals a bit. Hey, um, because this is, plants are there, they, they're all day eating sunlight, they have energy to burn. That's why they're such good chemists. You know, hey, let's um, synthesize some molecules that'll smarten up the animals. Good idea. But if you want to believe that they're uh, producing these chemicals for no reason because evolution uh, has no intention, you know, if you're just a sort of materialist atheist, you're welcome to believe that they're doing all this for no reason. It it really does depend on how you see the world. And I think it's important to respect people's religions, you know. So if you want to believe it's there for no reason, that's okay. But I think that the data warrants. Also considering that it might be possible that the plants are doing this because it's in their interest to do it. Actually, if, uh, you know, they say follow the money uh, if you want to understand a, a crime. I think with plants you've got to follow the chemicals and they, they speak through their chemicals. So you, if you want to understand what plants have in mind, you look at what they're doing with their chemicals you know, and, and the idea that uh, DMT is, is there uh, just by coincidence, um, it's kind of a strange idea really. You know, I'm getting these messages, I've got a, a meeting at 11.30. Is that okay? Thank you so much. Okay. I'm sorry that I have to rush out of here, I'm enjoying this conversation with you guys. <laughs>
0: Before we finish this final episode of the World Ayahuasca Conference series, I think we need a little recap of the most important parts of Jeremy Narby's talk, in my opinion.
1: Why is it that gringos never have enough wealth? You can give them gold, they'll they'll only want more. The religious ancestors of the Europeans came some time ago to tell our grandparents to stop drinking ayahuasca, saying it was satanic work. And so we mainly gave it up. And many people were put to death for having drunk ayahuasca and for having healed people of different diseases. And now Europeans and Americans drink ayahuasca in their cities, protected by human rights. Indigenous communities across the Amazon are faced with extractive industries, wide-scale deforestation, environmental contamination, and territorial encroachment. In these circumstances, benefiting from the healing of ayahuasca while doing nothing for the people who initially developed the brew and who are in difficult circumstances seems vampiric. One suggestion among many possible suggestions um, is find an organization near you that backs the initiatives of indigenous Amazonian people and make a donation every time you drink the brew according to your means and according to what you think the medicine has given you.
0: If you want to support the podcast why don't you write a nice review on iTunes and why don't you post a link in social media and share it with your friends. If you got a bit of scratch then maybe you can become a Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash Alchemist and support the podcast with a buck or two a month. That would really help out. Now we end this episode with the song Common Law vampire and it's from the album lamp by the gentleman's anti-temperance league if you like the music you can find more at thegatl.com. freedom is in the mind